0: Hi, welcome back to another episode of Timeline Tapes. I'm Nate, and I'm part of the team that makes the YouTube channel Timeline, the home of world history documentaries on YouTube. I also host this show, which takes videos from our YouTube channel and, with some editing, converts them into podcasts because we know that there's not always time to watch an entire series, but sometimes you can listen to it instead. This week, we're turning our attention to World War II with another episode of Battles Won and Lost. Which looks at key conflicts from the war. We've already released six episodes of this series, but you can listen in any order. Our first battle is the Kokoda Track Campaign from 1942. In this section you'll hear from Nicholas Anderson, author of the book Two Kokoda, and Dr. Carl James, a senior historian from the Australian War Memorial. I'll be here to guide you through the episode, but now it's time to hand you over to our narrator, Peter McCallum.
2: The day after the fall of Singapore, John Curtin, the Australian Prime Minister, said that the battle for Australia has begun.
3: That every human being in this country is now, whether he or she likes it, at the service of the government to work in the defence
2: of Australia. And it did seem probable that Japan would continue to drive south. They had so far been unstoppable on land.
4: In July 1942, you're looking at probably the most critical time of the Pacific War. You're coming on from months and months of just constant Japanese victories. They've swept everything that stood before them in the Southeast Asia and then swept down through Dutch East Indies, taken a whole raft of Pacific Islands.
2: The extraordinary speed with which Japan had swept over the lands they now labelled the Greater East Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere owed much to surprise, to planning, to determination, so that when they were checked on one of the most hellish battlefields it is possible to imagine, it was as though a myth had been exposed. This was the action to cross the Owen Stanley Range and fall on the New Guinea capital of Port Moresby.
4: The Japanese want it so that they can cement their southern defensive arc and also use that position to then harass the northern Australian cities and try and sever the link between Australia and the US. They're also really concerned that Australia may be used as a launching pad for a counter offensive. So that's why their designs are there on Port Moresby.
2: In July 1942, a small force comprising an Australian and a New Guinea battalion was sent from Moresby to trek overland to Buna. There was a small airfield at Buna and General Douglas MacArthur, commanding the Western Pacific Theatre, decided that he would need it for future operations.
3: In the Pacific, the Allies face a very tough enemy in the Jap. These Australians fighting in Papua know just how tough, ...and they know how big a job it's going to be to oust the Jap from his recently conquered empire of islands.
2: The force that set off was named Marubra Force. In mutual ignorance, another force would be trekking towards them. Initially, the Japanese wanted to take Port Moresby by sea
1: in an impressive amphibious landing. However, the Japanese defeat at Coral Sea and then later on at Midway meant the Japanese weren't able to do this by sea. And instead, they decided to land a small force on the northeast tip of Papua, on the northern beaches around Buna, Gona and San Ananda, with a view of attempting to move inland across the impressive Owen Stanley Range towards Port Moresby, uh, along a foot track, which we now know as the Kokoda
2: Trail or the Kokoda Track. A force of 2,000 under Colonel Yosuke Yokoyama had landed at Gona on July 21st, six days after Marubra force had reached Kokoda. Two days later, first contact was made between the Japanese and the heavily outnumbered Australians. The war diary for the Australian 39th Battalion says this for July 27th. Lieutenant Colonel Owen, after the destruction of all possible stores, material and buildings at Kokoda, withdrew with all troops. It was the beginning of a fighting withdrawal down the track towards Moresby, which stopped a mere 50 kilometers from the capital, whose lights the Japanese could see.
4: Fighting withdrawal is distinct from a retreat. In a retreat, you're basically trying to break contact with the enemy, get as far away from them as you can so you can take stock and then really try and counterattack. Fighting withdrawal, you're deliberately maintaining contact with the enemy because you want to slow down their advance as long as you can. And the Australians did that really successfully in the early part of September.
3: The Aussies rightly claimed to be some of the toughest troops in the world, but fighting in New Guinea would sap the strength of the toughest. It's not hard to understand the temporary exhaustion of these men. Having just been relieved, they've come out of the jungle front line for a rest.
2: In the first phase, the small force that had advanced fell back on Isurava, where it linked with regular Australian troops. Still heavily outnumbered, the Australians, after several days, fell back again to stand on Efogi. Part of the Australian force was cut off here by a Japanese flanking move and was isolated for two weeks. By September 10th, the withdrawal had reached Ioribaiwa, where it was strengthened by further Australian troops advancing out of Moresby. This force held the Japanese for a week then withdrew to a strong defensive position on Imita Ridge, 50 kilometers from Moresby. This placed the Australians at the end of a manageable supply line and extended the Japanese lines of communication in a place where distance was not the issue. Porters and mules brought up supplies. The Japanese, with their typical shortage of support elements, were soon suffering terribly lacking food, enfeebled, and racked by disease.
4: I've heard New Guinea described as the foulest terrain that was encountered by troops in the Second World War. Essentially, you have 10 days worth of travel over a series of mountains. It ascends and descends 5,000 metres, which when you look at it, is more than that you would actually climb from the Everest base camp to the Everest summit and then you consider that they're doing that in hate while they're being afflicted by leeches, mosquitoes. Uh, They're ravening with dysentery. That's a lot to contend with, let alone thinking about the fact that you're also fighting a war and being shot at.
2: For every man wounded on the Kokoda Track, seven were incapacitated by sickness. Bearers bringing supplies to the front line, a trek of eight days, Necessarily consumed half the supplies on the journey.
3: Australians bring up their artillery. And please remember that the temperature is around about 90 in the shade, a wet, steamy heat at that.
1: You need to remember these guys are in their late teens, early to mid 20s. They've been in the military for months. They're probably at the peak of their fitness. And soldiers themselves talk about how exhausting the terrain was. We know that soldiers, particularly during the second part of the campaign, as they moved forward, they started jettisoning their equipment, basically they stripped down to so all they really had was a shirt and their shorts. Everything was done to, to strip down, to minimise your weight, because you just want to save what energy
2: you have to go forward. As the Australians began their move back along the track, the Japanese facing them could not expect relief. The attempted landing at Milne Bay had been repulsed and the commitment to Guadalcanal in the Solomon Islands denied the force in the Owen Stanleys any hope of reinforcement. Towards the end of September, now coming under pressure from relatively fresh Australian troops, the Japanese began their own fighting withdrawal. Rearguards were skillfully deployed along the track, and it took bitter fighting, firing sometimes at shadows in the jungle, locking sometimes in hand-to-hand combat, at Templeton's Crossing, and then Eora Creek, before Kokoda was retaken.
1: It's very hard to appreciate how claustrophobic jungle warfare is. When you can't see the enemy, all you can hear is noises. And you think, was that a Japanese soldier? Or is it a wild pig? Is it one of my mates who's got lost? I can't see him, can he see me? So terrain is key, that sense of atmosphere and place.
2: The toll was horrific. More than 150,000 Japanese troops served in New Guinea. Barely 6% of them survived. What was left of the Japanese force made a last stand at Oivi, east of Kokoda, before retiring to the coast. The fighting moved towards the sea, And on January 2nd, 1943, almost six months after Marubra Force had first set off to cross the Kokoda Track, its objective, Buna, fell to the Allies. The success at Kokoda, as any success will, boosted morale and hardened the troops for the battles ahead.
3: Every victory has been the result of tremendous effort, great endurance and supreme individual courage. A real beginning has been made in driving the Japs back from the fringe of their Pacific conquests. A solid foundation for the shape of things to come.
0: Next, we're going to be focusing on the Battle of Suomusalmi, which occurred in 1939. Here is Dr. Peter Stanley from the Australian Centre for the Study of Armed Conflict and Society.
2: Woods and water in the land of the midnight sun and the thousand lakes. But at the end of a year, very little sun, temperatures to minus 40 and more than a meter of snow. This was the landscape into which the Red Army thrust, not as part of the World War, but as a cynical land grab, taking the opportunity of the universal preoccupation with the main battlefield to redefine its
5: border with Finland. Finland had been part of the Russian Empire, and uh, Stalin's Soviet Union thought that it had dibs, and in the winter of 1939-40, invaded Finland, hoping to snatch some easy territory.
2: Didn't turn out that way, though. Soviet forces invaded Finland on November 30th, 1939. The assault by the 13th Army over the Karelian Isthmus faltered against the Mannerheim Line.
3: But the Reds were opposed. They're said to have left over 8,000 dead on the frozen battlefield near Summa in the south in the course of an eight-day attempt to break the Mannerheim Line.
2: Further north, five divisions of the Soviet 9th Army were met by small units that ultimately formed into a single Finnish division, the 9th, at a place called Suomossami. These troops were not strong enough to prevent Russian occupation of Suomossami village, though the withdrawing Finns had burned it as they had destroyed bridges to slow the Russian advance.
3: All huts and farm buildings are destroyed by fire so that the unfortunate Soviet troops can find no shelter from the terrible Arctic weather. And death by freezing has caused quite a big proportion of their losses.
2: With Suomussalmi in Russian hands, the first stage of the battle ended. The Finnish troops were assembled on the southern bank of the Kianta Lake and were brought under fire on December 9th by an assault supported by artillery and grenade launchers. The Russian tanks could not support the attack. The ice was thick enough for men, but it was too early in the winter for the tanks to safely cross. This was the first evidence that the Red Army had not properly anticipated the conditions on the battlefield. The weather was arctic.
5: Uh, There was a metre of snow across the ground. The Russians, who you'd think would be used to those
2: conditions, in fact weren't. They were colossally underprepared. The 27th Infantry Regiment attacked from the east. Its target, the southern part of the village. Finnish units pressed forward until after two weeks of fighting, Soviet forces left Suomosami and withdrew across the ice of Lake Kianta. With Suo Musalmi back in Finnish hands, Colonel Hjalmar Silazdwo, commanding, put everything he had into dislodging the Russians from the vital Rata Road area. His plan was to cut the supply route that reached over the border and kept the Red Army in the field. Silazuo ordered a road cleared across the frozen lakes, parallel to the Rata road. In early January, he unleashed his assembled force. The Finns were equipped, white-suited in the snow. Units of them ski troops, all of them winter-proofed.
3: The Finns continue to defend their country against the Russian aggressor with the greatest valor and tenacity. The Russian dead cannot yet be counted but scenes like this are to be found over many miles of the front.
2: The Red Army Command had made the mistake that the Germans would make in Russia, thinking that a quick victory would come before the bitter cold took its toll. The fighting quality of the Red Army was also compromised by the brutality of Stalin's paranoid purges, which had stripped the military of 36,000 of its best officers and that cast of Paul, it, it grossly undermined the the morale of, of Russian commanders, uh, and that, that malaise penetrated through their units. The 163rd Division was destroyed, and the Rata Road was cut, meaning resupply and reinforcement was not possible. The climax would be the battle to evict the Soviet force from Rata, forcing them back towards and over the border. Facing the Finns was the elite motorized 44th Division. The Russian forces were immensely
5: superior to the Finnish forces, which were very lightly equipped. The Russians advanced in in long mechanized columns through the Finnish forests, covered in snow, ice-covered lakes, and that was their weakness because the Finns, who were very lightly equipped and moved on skis, descended on the Russian columns, cut them off and cut them to pieces, a tactic that the Finns called moti, which means piling up wood in the
2: forests, which is what they did to the Russians. Between the 5th and 7th of January, the 44th was destroyed, and the battle of Suomussalmi was over. When in March a peace treaty ended the Russo-Finnish war, the situation in Suomussalmi was unchanged, with the Finns continuing to occupy the village and the road. Their victory, a victory for morale, motivation, tactics and terrain, had cost the Soviet Union thousand killed or frozen to death, 50 tanks destroyed and vast quantities of equipment lost and broken. Musalmi, although it was
5: a tactical victory, didn't help the outcome of the war because when Germany invaded the Soviet Union, it brought Finland in as its ally. Finns were eager to regain their territory and to exact revenge on the Soviets, but it got caught up in uh, this terrible Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union.
0: Now we're going to look at the Battle of the Kasserine Pass from 1943.
2: On November 8, 1942, an American force sailing from the USA started to disembark troops in Morocco.
3: The many beaches selected for the landings ranged from the western corner of Morocco to places hundreds of miles east, beyond the Straits of Gibraltar, beyond Algiers.
2: It was part of the complex operation to land on the western edge of North Africa and move east to effect a link up with the Eighth Army moving west after its success at El Alamein.
3: Many landings were actually or almost entirely unopposed.
2: The campaign was known as Operation Torch and early in its unfolding American and German troops met in battle for the first time when two Axis army groups, one under General von Arnhem, the other, Erwin Rommel, moved forward to meet them. On February 14th, von Arnhem launched Operation Springwind attacking and taking Sidi Bouzid after a day-long fight. During the action, American operations were hampered by weak command decisions and poor use of armor. On the 15th, Rommel launched his offensive, Operation Morning Wind, destroying 40 American tanks during the first day of operations. He pushed on to Zbietla. General Fredendahl, a controversial commander who never visited the front, pulled his force back to the Kazarine Pass. Linking with 10th Panzer Division from von Arnhem's command, Rommel assaulted the new position on the 19th, smashing into the Allied lines and compelling US troops to withdraw. Rommel personally led the 10th Panzer Division into the Kasserine and ordered 21st Panzer Division to press through the Sbiba Gap. This move was effectively blocked by an allied force centered on the British 6th Armored, US 1st and 34th Infantry Divisions. Fighting around Kasserine, revealed serious deficiencies in Allied armour, the superiority of German panzers quickly defeating US M3 Lee and M3 Stuart tanks. Exiting the pass, Rommel divided 10th Panzer to press north towards Thala and west towards Tibessa, which he never reached. By the night of February 21st, Rommel stood outside Thala and believed that the Allied supply base at Tibessa on the railway line was within reach. But the Allied lines at Thala had been reinforced by British infantry backed by US artillery, and the position occupied on the 22nd was the limit of the German advance.
3: The enemy's resistance, though resolute, was eventually broken here and there was plenty of evidence by the wayside as our advance continued.
2: Rommel, unable to break through, elected to end the battle in order to reinforce the Marath Line, the position that could prevent Montgomery, advancing west, from breaking through and linking up with the forces that had landed as part of Operation Torch.
3: Finally, the withdrawal of the enemy tank force. Just one isolated incident in the combined Allied effort to drive Rommel and Co. into the sea.
2: Allied forces reoccupied Kasserine Pass on February 25th. The first major clash between American and German forces, the battle showed an enemy superiority, not just in some material, but predictably in experience. It also exposed flaws in the American command structure and doctrine. The American response to what was more a debacle than a battle lost was to initiate several changes, including the immediate removal of the incompetent Fredendall. Command of Second Corps famously passed to Lieutenant General George S. Patton. Patton was controversial. His disciplinary methods got him into trouble and his pistol-packing ways had their critics. But he was a fighting general and with the Allies on the attack, an aggressive fighting disposition was required. Patton drove his troops from Africa into Sicily and out of the Normandy beachhead, rallied them at the Battle of the Bulge and earned and loved the nickname Old Blood and Guts.
0: Welcome back to Timeline Tapes. We're starting the second half of this episode with the recovery of Burma from 1944 and author and historian Dr. Peter Peterson. In
2: terrain as difficult as any fought over, and conditions as harsh as any that soldiers had to endure, the Burma campaign went on month after long month of thrust and counterthrust.
6: The first half of 1944 is dominated by the Japanese attempt to invade India. They're halted just over the border, and there the Japanese suffer the biggest defeats in their military history. They leave 50,000 dead on the battlefield. That's their high water mark. Then they pull back. At last,
2: towards the end of 1944, With Allied troops beginning to be strengthened, with the tide turned in Europe, and with Japanese resources threadbare, the operation to expel Japanese troops from Burma gained momentum. Two operations were designed to expel the Japanese from Burma. Capital, in which Slim's 14th Army would advance from Assam across the Chinwin to re-establish contact with the nationalist Chinese, and Dracula, a combined airborne, land,
6: and amphibious assault on Rangoon. The 14th Army and the Burma theatre were at the bottom of British priorities. The Mediterranean, Europe, and the home front took priority. So it had very few resources. It fought on scales of transport, and other administrative elements that would have been unacceptable in other theatres. The next thing that Slim did, and which is critical in this campaign, is raise the morale and confidence in 14th Army to fever pitch.
3: General Slim, commander of the 14th Army, has some heartening news of the war against Japan. Nothing can stop us winning, but a great deal can be done to speed up and render less costly the final
6: victory. The 14th Army called itself the Forgotten Army, and Slim seized on that and made the Forgotten Army something to be proud of. In early November, the Chinese Sixth Army began to move.
2: Operation Capital was launched on December 3rd, with the 11th East African and 19th and 20th Indian divisions crossing the Chinwin. A few days later, the Chinese 1st Army was coming south towards the British line of advance and took Bamo. General Kimura, commanding Japan's Burma Area Army, was in a desperate situation. He had little prospect of resupply and was obliged to marshal what he had with great care. So he fell back before the initial advance, offering token resistance. The lack of defence encouraged Slim to change the plan. Operation Extended Capital was more ambitious.
6: His generalship was superb. He convinced the Japanese that he was going to throw everything at Mandalay. Naturally, they deployed the bulk of their forces to protect Mandalay, it being a very important communications hub for them. But then, through an elaborate deception plan, Slim deployed an entire corps about 100 kilometres south where they crossed the Irrawaddy and then headed another 80 kilometers to take Mike Teela, through which all the Japanese communications to Mandalay and further north passed.
2: The Japanese were repositioning their defenses for the battle for Mandalay. So West African and Indian advances in the Arakan and 15th Corps Hook along the coast to Ramri were largely unopposed
3: a war of patrol activity in which the Bren carrier scouts along the coast.
2: On January 7th, the Japanese 15th Army withdrew across the Irrawaddy. By mid-January, the 19th Indian Division had established a bridgehead across the Irrawaddy. At the end of the month, the Burma and Ledo roads were joined at Mongu, with the Chinese 1st Army striking south along the Burma Road and the 6th striking southeast from Bamo.
3: These Chinese units have been attacking Japanese positions guarding the Burma Road. And they've been making progress.
2: 4th Corps pressed south, initiating the battle for Tila which fell to the 17th Indian Division. Their supply route was then cut by a Japanese counter-attack. And the veteran 17th, continuously in the field for longer than any other unit in the British Army, had to rely on airdropped supplies while repelling repeated attempts by the Japanese 33rd Army to take Mactila's airfields. The 33rd's commander, General Maskey Hinder, was forced to order a withdrawal on March 28th. 19th Indian Division had reached the outskirts of Mandalay on the 9th, with most of the city cleared by the 11th, as 2nd British Division advanced from the west. The focus now turned to Rangoon, which would be assaulted by a combined operation codenamed Dracula. 17th Indian was advancing south along the line of the Sitang, reaching Pegu on April 29th. By then, the first promise of the monsoon, the so-called mango rains, were falling.
6: The monsoon made campaigning in Burma impossible for six months of the year, and life was miserable at that time. The Japanese, with their long lines of communication, primitive transport, not having control of the air, couldn't keep their troops supplied. At least Slim could. Many of the Japanese in Burma simply starved.
2: Despite the weather, it was decided to go ahead with the combined allied assault on the capital. On May 1st, a Gurkha parachute battalion dropped on Elephant Point at the mouth of the Irrawaddy. And the next day, the 26th Indian Division carried the amphibious assault. They linked with the 17th advancing from Pegu on the 6th. But the Japanese had withdrawn towards the Thai border. By the beginning of August, the last Japanese had left Burma,
6: but they were not pursued. The victory in Burma did restore some measure of British respect but it was too late because the earlier defeats in Burma and especially in Malaya and Singapore had been a stimulus to nascent nationalist movements and they bore fruit in the independence granted to both India and Burma after the war.
0: Next is convoy PQ-17 from 1942. This is Dr. Peter Stanley again.
3: The greatest defense against the U-boat has been the unfailing courage of the men who bring supplies across the sea in the face of every risk of war and weather.
2: Through the summer months, the Arctic ports of Mamansk and Archangel in the White Sea were vital entry points for Allied supplies, being sent to the Soviet Union under the Lend-Lease arrangement.
5: When the Soviet Union entered the war, the Western Allies immediately agreed to, to send as much support as they could to the Soviet Union. And that meant going either the southern way through Persia, which is the long way round, or the cold way through the Arctic Sea, around the top of Norway. And now this sounds like a really disastrous way to go about supplying the Soviet Union, but in fact it, it worked. Uh, 103 ships went through 1941-42, and only one of those ships was was sunk. So, Arctic convoys actually worked, but in July 1942, the Arctic convoy system fell to pieces.
2: 39 convoys travelled to the North Russian ports, and of 533 escorted merchant vessels, only 69 were lost to enemy action. And most of those losses were taken by PQ-17, the designation of the convoy that suffered more than any other anywhere in the war. PQ-17, the initials were merely those of the man who chartered the original convoy route, sailed from Valfjorda in Iceland on June 27th.
3: It was a very big convoy, escorted by many warships, and of course every man aboard every ship knew pretty well what lay ahead. Attack by U-boat, by bomber and torpedo
2: bomber. It was the first Anglo-American convoy to sail under British command. It comprised 35 merchantmen carrying 297 aircraft, 594 tanks, 4,246 trucks and gun carriers and a further 156,000 tons of cargo sufficient to equip an army of 50,000 men. In the values of the day, the cargo was worth an estimated $700 million. The escort comprised four cruisers, three destroyers and two submarines, as well as a pair of tankers to refuel the vessels as required. Shortly after sailing, one ship ran aground and had to return to Iceland. On June 29th, the convoy encountered heavy ice, damaging four ships, one of which was given permission to turn back. 33 ships sailed on. On July 1st, they were located by German forces. The British Admiralty was also monitoring PQ-17, and on learning that German ships, including the battleship Tirpitz, were moving to intercept, ordered the escort to break off, to hunt the German raiders. And in view of the removal of the covering force, the convoy was ordered to scatter in an admiralty order sent by Admiral Dudley Pound at 2123 on July 4th. Followed at 2136 by a simple, unambiguous order, convoy is to scatter. The turning point for PQ-17
5: comes on the evening of the 4th of July, when the British, from the Admiralty, this isn't a local decision, it's an Admiralty decision for the convoy to scatter, literally deserting those merchant ships and making them find their own way to Soviet ports. They're only halfway through the voyage at this point, uh, and it leaves them at the mercy of the Germans.
2: When the order came, the convoy had covered a little over half of its journey. Spread across the ocean, it would be far more difficult for a battleship to target. But the Tirpitz played no part, no surface raider did. But U-boats and the Luftwaffe fell on the scattered and undefended vessels through the long daylight hours of the northern summer. The messages from the isolated ships have been preserved and being bombed, on fire. Six U-boats approaching on the surface, abandoning ship. On July 15th, six merchantmen were sent to the bottom by the Luftwaffe, and six more by U-boats. Two more on the sixth, five the next day, and two more, the final two, on the 10th. Churchill called it a melancholy naval episode. It was rather more than that. Of the 33 ships that had sailed on without escort, 23 had been sunk and more than 150 lives lost. 180,000 tonnes of war material had been loaded in Iceland. 64,000 tonnes were delivered. Supply via the Arctic route was temporarily suspended not resuming until September, when much stronger escort arrangements were in place. The convoy system was actually a
5: a work of genius. I mean, the British tried it in the the Napoleonic Wars and realised 100 years before that, that it was a success. If you went in a convoy, you could get through. In the First World War, they proved it again. As in the last war, so in this. The convoy
3: system has proved its efficiency.
5: So convoys should be a way of getting supplies to where you need them in a safe way and indeed that's exactly what they proved in just about every other theater of the war
3: we attack with depth charges now for the explosion the submarine crippled by depth charges is forced to surface
5: pq 17 is different pq 17 because of this this panic I mean, you can only describe it as a, a mark of, of of panic on the part of dudley pound where he abandons the, the convoy it proves that convoys work because PQ 17 doesn't. But why does he abandon them? And it's a mark of just how, how fearsome the German pocket battleships were. You know, these commerce raiders, which they'd sunk most of during the war, but the Tirpitz remained. And what Dudley Pound didn't want was for American cruisers to be sunk by the Tirpitz. And that's the reason, I think, why PQ 17 was abandoned to its fate.
0: We'll end this episode on the pivotal Battle of Moscow from 1941 and hear from Dr. David Stahl, author of Operation Barbarossa and Germany's Defeat in the East, as well as historian Oleg Beta.
2: The offensive launched against Russia in June 1941, Operation Barbarossa, was without parallel in the history of war. Along a massive front, an armed mass of more than a million men, machines... Tanks, aircraft of 650,000 horses swept into and through the Soviet heartland. But Barbarossa did not drive for the capital. After Smolensk fell in August, German troops turned north and south. There's a strategic dispute between Hitler
7: and the generals in July and August 1941, in which the generals are unambiguously geared toward seizing Moscow. Hitler does not want to do this. He opts for the Battle of Kiev. But two weeks into the Battle of Kiev, so early September, Hitler issues a war directive stating that after he has taken the eastern parts of the Ukraine, there will be a major new offensive directed toward Moscow.
2: When it came, It was designated Operation Typhoon. The Germans planned a giant pincer movement, closing north and south to grip the capital. Third and fourth panzer armies would move against the Kalinin front and cut the Moscow-Leningrad railway. Second panzer army would move in the south and 4th Army would move from the west, directly
0: on Moscow. It was like the same pattern as Barbarossa, so we're making these enormous encirclements and cutting them into two or three salients and then destroying them separately, and then the pathway to Moscow must be open.
2: The numbers finally involved were staggering towards 2 million Axis, with over 1,000 tanks and 500 aircraft. In the end, more than 2 million Soviet troops, 3,000 tanks, and more than 1,000 aircraft. But before the Soviet command could bring up reserves and reach those figures, the Germans enjoyed superiority. And at the start of Operation Typhoon, success. In their drive, 4th Panzer and 2nd Panzer quickly isolated pockets at Vyazma and Bryansk, respectively, that trapped Red Army formations. When the Bryansk pocket surrendered on October 14th, 50,000 prisoners were taken. Many Soviet troops managed to escape. Five days later, the Vyazma pocket was eliminated, and here, 670,000 prisoners marched into cruel captivity that would cost many their lives.
7: In many ways, one of the fascinating things about the Eastern Front is just the enormity, the frightening enormity of the losses on both sides, but especially on the Soviet side in 1941. So these catastrophic losses are sustained. At that point, Germany, this is a real reflection of its hubris, is pronouncing the war is won
0: the soldiers are reading the newspapers on the front line and they're shocked because that's not what they see yes the red army they've lost a lot of people but they're still sending in new troops they're still sending in people so they have more resources and it's so obvious that the germans cannot hold on yes they can push on but at what cost
2: in early october the first rains fell before long Liquid mud was slowing the advance, but by the 13th of October German troops reached the fortifications grown up to protect Moscow's western approaches, the Mozhaysk Line. Zhukov had by now been placed in command of the defense, and he pulled troops back and concentrated them at key strong points. This weakened the Moschaisk Line, which fell on October 18th. No line existed to hold up the advance in the south, but bad weather and bad roads did. Tula was not reached until October 26th. The German invasion was moving. It was moving slowly, but it was moving inexorably. It was winning and would soon be at the gates of Moscow. But by late October, two-thirds of the German motor pool was out of action. Fuel supply problems were chronic and casualties were mounting. To rectify the deficiencies, from the end of October until November 15th, the High Command ordered a pause. The
3: city of Tula, about hundred miles due south of the capital, was almost surrounded. But this important factory town held out. The workers of Tula carried on with their munition-making to the very last minute possible.
7: What's interesting and what is also reflective of National Socialist military thinking is the Germans themselves know that this two-week pause benefits the enemy more than it benefits themselves. So even though they know they need this time to bring up more supplies, more offensive capacity, they're also aware the Soviets are benefiting even more. And that doesn't stop them from attempting Typhoon 2 in the middle of November when the weather is even colder. This is going to be a frontal advance, really sending their men into the teeth of Soviet defenses. If this strikes you as a bad idea, you're right, it is a bad idea.
2: On November 15th, German tank armies moved, restoring the pincer, squeezing in on Moscow. Klin fell on November 24th. By the 28th, panzers had a bridgehead over the Moscow-Volga canal. But the first shock army drove them back with a counterattack. German units now stood less than 30 kilometers from their objective and German officers surveyed the onion turrets of Moscow through their field glasses. And then, the most ferocious Russian of all entered the field.
3: General Winter, though we were warned not to rely upon his aid too much, is already proving a powerful ally. And the Red Army makes full use of the alliance.
2: On November 30th, General von Bock reported to Berlin that the temperature was minus 45 degrees celsius and that tanks would not start lubricants were frozen soldiers in summer uniforms were dying and frostbite was being seen on december 2nd a wehrmacht reconnaissance battalion reached kimki less than 20 kilometers from the kremlin and that was as far as Typhoon got. German
7: forces are overextended, they are exhausted, they are at the end of very tenuous supply lines, and they have absolutely no idea of what's coming. The offensive from the Soviets will begin on the evening of the 5th, and the Germans will then begin a massive withdrawal, both in the north of Moscow and towards the south around Tula. This retreat will be catastrophic for the Germans.
3: It's only a few weeks ago that the German advance on the Eastern Front had reached the very outskirts of Moscow itself. Only a few weeks ago, Hitler's intuition told him Moscow would fall. Certainly things did look pretty black for Russia and for us.
2: The battle for Moscow was over. And for the Germans, the battle to hold ground and survive had begun
7: there is no path to German success. Economically, they're falling behind. Militarily, they haven't got their operational edge, and they can't get it back. So while the German army still exists in being, while it still occupies the Eastern Front, and while it still has got men and artillery and tanks, and sometimes impressive numbers, it's not able to ever end the war, and unless Hitler's looking for a political solution, which is not possible for him, he sees this war ending only in victory or utter total defeat, and that's what's gonna happen.
0: Thanks for listening to Timeline Tapes. We've got one more Battles Won and Lost episode to come, but in the meantime, you can always visit our YouTube channel to catch even more world history documentaries. If you want to contact the show, you can email us at timeline at little.studios.com, and you can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Those are both at TimelineWH. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe. And if your podcast app of choice gives you the option, leave us a review too. I've been Nate Fisher. This has been Timeline Tapes. Let's go down in history together.